Alrighty, today's title, let's flash that up there if we could. Malware or zombie? Malware or zombie? I needed a title that will keep you active during a difficult text. You've got to put your thinking cap on for this text, but we'll get to this. Malware or zombie. Remember what we're reading? It's not a, a standalone quick start guide. We've got to remember that sometimes. Do you look at your Bible sometimes like I do? It's a quick start. Or do you give counseling in that fashion? Oh, I don't want to ever do that. This is not a standalone quick start guide. It's not a counseling self-help manual. What we're reading is a divinely inspired letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in first century Rome. Now, Paul needs their help. So he hopes to visit them for some specific mission-related reasons, and they need Paul's help. So he wants to help them, and he's going to write to them to help them clarify their understanding about the gospel and its application to their lives. So Romans, you can put it under the heading of, Paul needs their help, he's heading there because he wants to establish a base to go to Spain. They need Paul's help actually desperately. And Paul is writing them to help out. Welcome to Romans. They need his help with some specifics. Remember, there were tensions between the founding and at one time the majority culture, the Jewish Christians. There's tension between them and now the current majority culture, the Gentile Christians. So Paul writes to them about the promises, the history, and the law given to Israel. He covers topics such as food, festivals, Israel's future, Adam, Abraham, and most importantly, righteousness. But they need some big picture help too, not just the specifics. They need some help with the big picture because that's what the real problem is. So Paul needs to define, well, Paul's not, okay. They need some help with the big picture because Paul's non-Christian Jewish enemies had been spreading disinformation about the gospel, disinformation about grace, about works, and about sin. So Paul needs to define and defend the gospel that he's preaching. And he needs to answer the questions that this disinformation brings to mind. Stuff like, Is the law now null and void? Can you be righteous without obeying the law? What is faith? Does this grace lead to lawlessness? You see, they need help. They need truth. So Paul brings truth. Paul brings help. And Paul brings hope. All based on the gospel. Now today, in our day and time, we're not in the first century, we may have different questions or different ways of asking their questions. But today's text will resonate in our souls. I trust it will. It does in mine. And will offer us, today's text will offer us, and something you always need to keep in mind as you're listening to God's word preached. Today's text will offer us and those we evangelize and those we disciple. We don't ever just take, we take to give. It's the great commission You've been given, give away. So we take today's text for us. And you're going to find today's text especially for those we're evangelizing and for those we're discipling. 
it's going to give them some serious help and some serious hope. So our text today is Romans 7, verses 13 through 25. Romans 7, 13 through 25. So pop open your Bibles. If you happen to not have a Bible with you, probably the person somewhere around you does. So either look on their Bible or the Bible on their device and uh, follow along with us. While you're looking up at scrolling or doing the old-fashioned way paper, um, let me tell you a few things while you're hunting for Romans 7. Back then, first century, both Greek and Roman philosophy always wondered why humanity could figure out what was right, but couldn't manage to do it. And even worse, they wondered a lot why humanity could figure out what was wrong, but did it anyway. Israel had a similar problem. Now, unlike the pagans, Israel really knew what was right, and Israel really knew what was wrong. They had the law, capital L, given to them by God through Moses. So they really did know what was right, and they failed to do it. And they knew what was wrong, and they did it anyway, proving that all humanity, that's Paul's point in the first three chapters, of Romans. All humanity is morally incapable of perfectly doing God's will. All of us, apart from Christ, are incapable of perfectly. Doesn't mean we always sin all the time, no matter what. But we're, imper- we're not morally capable of perfectly doing God's will. So what's the outcome of that? Humanity loses Sin wins. Everybody dies. Welcome to the message of the first part of Romans. Humanity loses. Sin wins. And everybody dies. Talk about a hopeless situation. But today's text is part of a larger section, chapters 5 through 8. We're at the very end. But today's text is part of a larger section that addresses this hopeless, sec- this hopeless situation. It's a section where Paul brings hope to the table and the church gets to discover some good news. Pardon me. Here's the news. What Christ accomplished for his people on the cross triumphs over the universality of Adam's sin. Humanity sins because we're sinners. We're united with Adam. But now Christians become united with Jesus, the second Adam. So the cross triumphs over the universality of Adam's sin. We're united with Jesus, the second Adam. We are his people. That's chapter five. Talk about hope. Chapter six, the cross of Christ triumphs over the power of sin. That's chapter six. Remember, you gotta serve somebody. But Christians have a new master. Remember, sin will not ultimately win. Sin, the promise is, shall not be your master. Why? Because you're not under law, you're under grace. Welcome to chapter 6. Now the chapter we've been in last week in this, the cross of Christ triumphs over the accusation and the temptation of the law. That's what Al preached about last week, and we're going to continue this week. The cross of Christ triumphs 
over the accusation and the temptation of the law. And oh, wait until chapter 8, but I won't go there. That's next week. Okay, have you found Romans 7? Let's look in verse 13. Let's read it together. I'll read it. You read it silently with me. I'm reading out of the ESV. Did that which is good then, speaking about the law, did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law, capital L, the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So, I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in all my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but in my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of God. But it's a word that's confusing, isn't it? Let's unpack it. That's why we're going to ask the question, is it malware or is it a zombie? Zombie, zombie. Mm, Too much worship singing. Or is it a zombie? Is it a terminally infected operating system or is it a constant attack by something that just won't die what are we talking (laughs) i told you it resonate in your soul does this passage welcome to the two interpretations of this passage does this passage provide a timeless example of a Christian waging war in his or her soul? Would sin acting like some kind of zombie apocalypse? Or is this an example of a first century non-Christian pious Jew? Does it make a point about how the law does and does not function? You'll find folks giving you good reasons for either option. Personally, I don't see the zombie option. Oh, I know that's what it feels like as I read it. But I don't see the zombie option. I think it's a malware problem. Why? Does everybody know what malware is? Computer virus kind of stuff? Okay, good. Why? You know, some of you have paper Bibles. I've got to make sure you know. Okay. It's a joke. It's a joke. 
And you Windows users are going to hate me at the end because you're going to have to trade in your OS for iOS. That's Windows and then Salvation, iOS for Apple. Okay. <laughs> Just get that out of the way. All right. You can forgive me later. All right. Back to the text. Last week, verses 17, 7 through 12. Back to why it's malware, not a zombie. It's the Jew. Last week, verses 7 through 12 clearly referred to Israel's historic encounter with the law given by Moses at Mount Sinai. So it seems that if that was last week, chapter uh, verse 12, that this week, 13, this section would pick up on that logic. We're moving from Israel's just out of Egypt experience of the law to now first century Israel's experience with that same law post-Pentecost. So here's the law at Sinai. How did that work for him? Not very well. Here's the law now, first century. How's that working for that little pious, we'll say boy, Jewish fella? And we're going to see, not very well. The struggle depicted in these verses speaks of a slavery to the law of sin. But Romans 6 teaches us that we've been, as Christians, set free from sin. These verses speak of a struggle and a slavery that you don't win. But Romans 8 tells us that the Holy Spirit sets every believer free from the law of sin and from death. Because of the logic and because it doesn't apply, I don't see the zombie option. I I, I don't see it as a Christian struggle. So imagine with me a young man praying Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. He's studying the Torah in the first century, night and day. He is genuinely longing to make it his way of life, just what every pious, practicing, orthodox Jew of that time wanted to do. The problem is this hypothetical, pious Jew is still in Adam. And the law which he embraces shows him he's still a rebel. And as we saw last week, this same law not only accuses, it provides opportunity for sin. And in our example, Paul's example, what makes matters worse, it doesn't seem like our guy stealing or murdering or committing adultery. No, his intense misery is because his operating system wants to do what it was designed by its maker to do. But it's got a problem. He's pious. He's orthodox. He's, but he's got malware that David says in Psalms was installed at conception. His operating system was designed to do the right thing, but it's terminally infected. It works, but it never works right. And he dies as a result. He's judged by God and he dies. And the Torah, the law, oh, it informs him of that. The law detects the virus, but the law is powerless to quarantine the virus. The law detects the virus, but it's powerless to remove it. This operating system in him is part of him. It's the flesh. It's the old man in Adam. It's the sin nature. 
See, humanity does not, apart from Christ, no one in this room possesses the ability to perfectly obey God's commands. So remember, since we can't do it, sin wins. Everybody dies, but Paul has got some good news. And after Clarence gets his wings, we'll pray. Um, hear the little tinkling over there? Okay. Let's wait for Big Ben to stop chiming. Uh, my phone does that too, I get it. Father, help us today, we pray. Lord, it is a tough passage. It's a tough text. Lord, help me to preach. And Lord, help us, starting with me. Lord, to hear. Give us ears to hear. Give us a mind to understand. Give us a heart to obey. And then, Lord, give us a voice and hands to share it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to learn a lot about sin today. You can say today is sin school. That's what we're in. Here's what we're going to learn. Number one, sin lies to me. Number two, something else we're going to learn about sin. Sin makes me a slave. Number three, sin never gives in. It's going to stay up there for a while. You don't have to write it down real quick. And number four, sin wins. Why? Remember, humanity is incapable of perfectly obeying God. Sin wins. God judges. Everybody dies. And the question in the text is, will somebody save us? Sin lies to me, number one. Let's look down at our Bibles, verse 13. We're going to play bobblehead again. Sin lies to me. Did that which is good then, the law, bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Now, our guy loves the Mosaic law, and he wants to obey it. But the problem with that law is that it can't provide the person the power to obey it. Instead, the law always reminds you of what you do not do or what you should have done. But that doesn't make the law the problem. The law is from God. The law is good, but this good and this holy law was given to people who are neither good nor holy. It was given to the race of Adam, and they had his nature passed on to them. Their operating system is fatally flawed. You see, sin uses the law. Remember, let's go back to Adam and Eve. Sin uses the law. Here's Adam and Eve, here's sin. Sin uses the law, just like the fruit of the garden. It takes something good, something good, and it uses it to entice and to tempt. And it tells lies about what the law will do, and it tells lies. The law will make you right! This food will make you like God. Enticement. Here's something good. Here's something good. Sin gets in and messes with it. And the pious Jew willingly gives in and chooses to do things he shouldn't do or willingly does things he shouldn't. Our pious, God-fearing Jew has a rebellious nature. 
He has sin within. And sin that's using as a bait the very law our guy loves. And when our guy buys the lie and breaks that law, he receives the just wages of his sin. Death. And this reality, this is an insider look behind the curtain of sin. This reality unmasks sin for the miserable liar and master manipulator that sin is. Sin deals in death while promising freedom and the good life. But that's not all. This pattern continues because number two, sin doesn't just lie to you. It makes me a slave. Look at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it's good. Back to our guy. Here's the point of the text. Our guy's obedience, he's speaking to himself will always fall short. Willing and doing won't ever fully happen. you got to remember, or maybe what you don't know, in the first century to the audience that this was being written to, this, this Jewish fella, what Judaism thought back then was that a person's observance of the law of Moses, if you obeyed the law, it actually gave you the power to follow the good impulse. And just obeying the law gave you the power to say no to the bad impulses. You see, they didn't quite get the nature of sin. They didn't quite get sin within your flesh, your sinful nature. They didn't grasp just how bad off they were. They didn't comprehend the depth of sin in themselves, and they didn't get the hold it had on them. That's what Paul means when he says in our text, they don't understand their actions. It's what their actions reveal about sin's grip. They knew, and they agreed that the law was spiritual. They knew it was from God. They knew it was absolutely good and perfect. They knew that in their heads, and and they felt that in their hearts, especially when they didn't do it. And they experienced guilt and frustration because they knew they weren't obeying God. You see, the law is spiritual. It's from God. But our guy is flesh. He belongs to the family of Adam. He's a slave in the sense that he can't fully obey what he knows is right. Because in his heart, he's morally unable to be free from his own rebellious nature. Look at verse 17. This is where the eyes get confusing. For now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do good, to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin who dwells in me. This is the tough part. Paul's not talking about that there's this outside zombie attacking you. Paul explains why nothing 
good dwells in this person. Our guy is dominated by the flesh, by the sinful nature. Sin here is being understood as living inside of him, implying that sin is the dominant position in our guy's life. See, sin, the sin nature, our flesh, this virus, this malware is alien to our operating system, but it's still a part of our operating system. It's alien, but it's a part. And we're impotent before it. We're both slave and free at the same time. See, we're free to choose whatever we desire. But our desires, many times, are sinful. So you always choose what you desire right there in front of you. So you're free. But you're infected. And it's you. You're never free from yourself. The sinful nature, no good dwells there. See, we've got, you know this feeling, don't you? These two eyes within, like, but they're, they're us. They're in our flesh. They're in our sinful nature. It's our rebellion. Remember Romans 1? We reject God. And now humanity is powerless to resist the sin that it's been given over to. But humanity is still responsible for that sin because they let it in by rejecting God. Remember Romans 1? We all know there's a God. We want to do what Eve did, what Adam did. We reject. We know and we upload that virus and we can't say, hey, 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 hey. No, no. Now it's in. Now it's part of us. And we can't get away from it. What's sin anyway? I love J.I. Packer's thing. Because sin is, is really an abstract concept. I mean, it feels real. But it is abstract. Sin is the irrational, negative, and rebellious reaction to God's call and command. It's a spirit of fighting God in order to play God. Sounds like Adam and Eve, doesn't it? Thoughts, motives, and desires that one way or another express, and here's why it's alien, but you, express our willful opposition, our fallen heart, to God's claim on our lives. That's what sin's all about. And because of that, next slide, sin never gives in. Let's look at verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but when I see the, in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So a guy, he has this sad truism, this controlling principle that never, ever fails, this twisted law that our guy always seems to obey. Here's what it is. When he wants to do the right thing, sin, think Cain, when he wants to do the right thing, sin is crouching at the door. It's ready to pounce. It's right beside him all the time. It's powerfully present, and he's impotent to fully resist it. See, he says inside his head he delights in God's law. He does want to keep it. He's a pious pagan. He's a first century Jew. He's not a Christian. 
But he wants to keep the law. But he has this constant battle going on inside. Now, he wins a skirmish or two, but he always loses the war. And he always ends up a prisoner. Now, you've got you to gotta stay with me because if you're like me, you begin to think, well, I must be a pious first century Jew. That sounds like it's describing me. Hang on. This is described. Here, here's Paul's point. Listen. He's writing to Rome. They have Jews and Gentiles. They're, they're kind of fussing with each other. They got this tension about, does the law do something? And, and the, the folks from Judaism who have been saved now and are Christians, they're like, yeah, but remember, if you do the law, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The law is impotent. It does not do that. Actually, it tempts. Actually, it provides opportunity for sin. Now, the law is good. What my opponents have been saying that's going on in the gospel, that I say the law is bad, the law is not bad. It's given from God. It's good. But... It doesn't do what you guys think it does. Let's take an example. Let's take one of you before you were saved. Let's take me, Paul, a Pharisee before I was saved. I was really going after God. Let's take the the Jew next door, uh, your next door neighbor at your house in Rome. The one that's got the prayer shawl, the one that's got the Torah in front of him, the one that really is following him. He's going to the local synagogue. This is awesome. Should we do that too? Do we need Jesus plus the law to really get us going? No. Your training is wrong. They don't get what sin is inside of you. They think if you just obey some rules, you'll be morally better. And the more you hear, the more you'll do good. And the more you hear, the more you won't do bad. And Paul's saying that is bogus. You don't get it. You don't get what your actions tell you. You don't understand. Sin's got a grip on you. It's lying to you. It says it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. That's why you die. It is a big deal. You die. Sin makes you a slave. And by the way, sin will never give up. Right when you want to do something, it's right there. And it's stronger than you. And sometimes you'll elbow it out of the way and, and, and you'll win a little battle. And then bam! It takes you captive. And you're back in the POW camp. Because it wins the war every single time. Because you don't understand the nature of sin. Sin tells you, hey, don't do that. And you go, like Al said last week, don't do what? Oh, that. Ooh, I want to do that. <laughs> but see, sin's not out there. It feels like it's out there. Because that's why he's talking about these two eyes that are in this pious pagan. The pious pagan's still a rebel. He's still got a sin nature. By the way, Christian, you do too. The difference is, let me skip ahead, the power of sin is broken. This guy, the power of sin is not broken. And his point is, if even a pious Jew who has the law and wants to do the right thing the right way, if he can't do it, no one, all humanity's toast, with the law or without the law, Don't think the law is adding to the table. The law is not going to make you more moral. Oh, the law is important. We'll get to that in a minute. But it doesn't do anything for you. Actually, it works against you because sin is tricky. Sin says, oh, by the way, um, do you remember? Don't covet. Remember? Don't covet. And you go, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm not supposed to covet. Ooh, I covet that. You know how it works. When you're on a diet. Oh, my goodness. The, 
you don't feel a twinge until you say, I'm going to diet, or it's New Year's. I'm going to eat well the rest of my life. (laughs) Okay, you get it. So if even the pious Jew who has the law from God given to Moses for Israel, righteous, spiritual, perfect, if he can't pull it off, by the way, Christian, neither can you when your little self-made laws. They don't do anything for us. It's Jesus. And following the commands of Christ by the power of the Spirit. It's not about our rules. If the law doesn't do it, your rules won't either, but I digress. What agony this guy is. There's only one of him, but it feels like there's two. He is one wretched individual. And the word wretched means miserable, mental, and emotional turmoil. He is tormented, but there's no escape. He's pious. He loves the law, but he cannot keep it. He's doomed to death. Why? Because he's a pious rebel. But he's aware. The law tells him he's guilty and vile and helpless. Who? Who will deliver him? And then Paul takes a break from sin class. Like he does many times. He's in the middle of something. And he just has to have this doxology. Who will rescue me from this? Paul's remember what it was like when he was a Pharisee. And persecuting Christ. And the Lord came to him. In the middle of it with no hope, no help, no God, no nothing. But thinking he was serving God. And wanting to serve God. And persecuting Christ's church. And on the road to Damascus. And the Lord shows up. And he doesn't say, well, sir, who are you? No, he says, Lord, because he'd heard the gospel. He was there when Stephen was stoned. He received grace. And grace doesn't want to make him sin more. Grace makes him fall on his face. Oh, Paul takes a break as he's remembering who he was. And he breaks into doxology. Thanks be to God. A deliverer has come. Jesus Christ our Lord. See, this is not academic. He's telling them why the law won't do what they thought it would do. It's Christ alone. They have no room for self-righteous boasting, and as Jews, they have no room for ethnic expectations. It's faith in Christ alone that saves them from the slavery and from the penalty of sin. And so, Paul breaks out and then gets back to class. Back to Romans 1, back to Ephesians 2. We're dead in sin, we're awaiting judgment, we're storing up wrath. Why? Because, last point, sin wins. Let's look at our text. Back to class, Sin School 101. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So then, our our pious, non-Christian, first century Jew remains divided. He is a conflicted and a miserable soul. He's wanting to obey God. Remember you before you were a Christian? And you first came into contact about something with God because you knew there's God. Everybody knows about the man upstairs. and Everybody knows we should obey him in some way, shape, or form. He wanted to obey God, but he endlessly believed the lie of sin. And he self-consciously rejected God. And he self-consciously rebelled against God's will. And that made him a tormented slave to his own sinful nature without any hope. One who will die 
and one who will go to hell. Okay, that's what the first audience heard. What in the world, Jim, do we do with all that? Well, here we go. If you're an unbeliever here, if you're not a follower of Christ, what do you do? Now, I'm not preaching at you, just telling you the truth. You need a new operating system. You're running Microsoft. You need, you're running Windows, okay? You need iOS, okay. Um, you need, you got to take a break from this, it's intense, isn't it? But the truth of the matter is, you need a new nature, you need a new heart. In our example, you need a new operating system. If not, sin will win. And what happens when, not if, when, when, when? Sin wins. You die. You go to hell. And then you're resurrected on that last day and you stand before God and you'll be finally and fully judged and then you'll suffer conscious, eternal torment. That's what happens when sin wins. But today, God is offering you the truth that will set you free from this lie and this slavery to sin. God is telling you to flee from his wrath and to put your trust and your hope and your life into the hands of Jesus. You must repent of these sins and trust in Jesus alone who suffered the wrath of God for all who will surrender to him. See, you can make a resolution that I'll get it right with the man upstairs and I'll live a little better life. No, 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 you don't get it. If the pious Jew who had the perfect law of God could not do it, and sin lied to him, made him a slave, never gave in, and ultimately wins. That's going to happen to you too. So please, trust in Jesus. Turn from sin and turn to Christ. Talk to like nearly anybody within three feet of you and they can explain that to you more fully. Now, for a Christian, what do we do? I got good news for you. You traded in your Windows 96 for a brand new spanking Mac. Okay, it's a joke. Um, you got a new operating system. Your heart of stone was changed out. You are no longer in the kingdom of darkness, but you're in the kingdom of the son of his love. You're no longer in the old Adam. You're part of the second Adam, the new humanity. You're no longer a slave to sin where sin will win. You're not a slave, but it's still present, isn't it? See, that's why this this verse makes us think it's Christians because we still feel that. But see, here's the good news. We forget chapter six. That's why it says, hey, Remember, it talks about, it's not a verse on baptism, but it uses baptism as an example. You've died, you've been resurrected, you're raised to new life. And then what does he say? Reckon yourself as dead to sin. Hey, this doesn't count for you no more. Hey, you know about the lies. Look what the gospel has done. Triumphs over, A, B, C, D. Hey, by the way, you know, you got a new operating system, but you still need some updates. And that's what the law does. And that's what the commands of Christ do. 
Welcome to the Bible study, the ordinary means of grace. Welcome to prayer. Welcome to fellowship. Because you know what? Here's the lie of the devil. Hey, this is still you. You know what? At times it is. And Paul doesn't say, set some new rules. Paul says, remember who you already are. And then become like that. Paul doesn't say, hey, rules will set you free. He says, Christ will set you free. And he sends his spirit to give you a new heart and to give you the ability and the wherewithal to have a new life. And remember, we've been to sin school. So when you walk out this afternoon and you start sinning, when you walk out this afternoon, when you walk out late tonight, tonight, and the internet starts to beckon your name, or that person down the street, or that materialistic thing on TV, or that desire, or that worry, or that fear. Listen, sin hasn't changed. The penalty's paid for. You're not going to hell. The power is broken. You don't have to. But the presence is still there. And since it's there, look to the Holy Spirit, not to a fresh rule. Look to God's word. And remember something about sin. It lies. And it wants to lie to you and enslave you, even as a Christian, when you've already been set free. Can you imagine? Here's the prison cell. You're free. And sin goes, no, you're not. Sin's a liar. You're part of Jesus. You're not part of Adam. Don't invent a new law. It's about Christ and Christ alone. You've got a new operating system. The law is good. It gives you some updates. The law is good. It tells you, hey, there's a stupid virus in there that's affecting your thinking. The Bible removes it. Or a friend goes, hey, you're being an idiot. Knock that off. Suck out the virus. But you're different. Sin shall not be your master. For you're not under law. You're under grace. Favor to the undeserving. Let's pray. Oh, Lord. Band, come on forward. Lord, thank you so much for what you've done for us in Christ. Lord, the cross of Christ has triumphed over the law. The cross of Christ has triumphed over sin. And even the devil, this section didn't deal with the devil. But Lord, we have an enemy who seeks to do us harm, but he can't. Lord, we don't want to end talking about sin and thinking about sin. Lord, we want to end remembering. Thanks be to God. We have a deliverer and a Savior who set this wretched man free. Lord, we want to end by looking backwards and remembering what you have done for us in Christ and living in the good of that. Lord, we've gone to sin school, but let us leave with joyful adoration. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.